You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We will go through two verses tonight, okay? Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We've been doing a study called Truth and Apply. And what we're doing is we're taking different pairs of studies, okay? So we'll have a topic and we'll have one message or one teaching that'll be on a concept and then the second will be the application of that concept. So in starting this out, what we did is we gave arguments for the existence of God in creation and design of the universe. And then Joe Fisher, the following week after that, talked about what we're created for as human beings. What is our purpose? Now that we know that we're created, what is the reason behind that? And what are we created to do? Tonight what we're going to do is we're going to go over what is called the moral argument for the existence of God. Big word. And actually, it's funny because this is the one argument of all the philosophical arguments that I thought was the stupidest. Because I was like, I don't think this convinces anybody. But as I explored it, I was like, oh, snap. This actually is really, really applicable. So I'm hoping tonight is very, um, not just educational, like your head kind of grows. But I'm also hoping that this is really practical. And then next week, we're going to answer a really, really interesting question about why it is that we have concepts like good and evil and what knowing those things does for us as human beings. Now, that sounds like a very simple statement at first. Like, that sounds, like, obvious. Obviously, you know good and evil for the, the reason that you do them. You don't hurt people and stuff. I would actually venture to say that in knowing good with God, there's an actual benefit versus knowing good without God. And now for the person who's not a Christian, that sounds like a strange statement. Because then people ask the question, can you be good without God? And I would say, maybe. But it depends. And you'll see what we mean, hopefully by the end of the study and the next week, it's going to like hopefully blow your minds. But even more than that, I'm hoping that like as you leave for today, you're like, wow, God actually exists. Now listen, if I do a good job tonight, which I may, I may not do, so I'm just giving a disclaimer. If I do a good job, you may feel like if you're not a Christian, you'll be like, that sounds like it's either fake or like a magic trick. You know when you're doing a magic trick or you're watching somebody on TV, it looks really convincing, but you're thinking there has to be something wrong with it? Now, taking something like this, I can prove to you, like, it looks like a bulletproof argument that God exists. But that may not convince you because you're like, okay, there's something, I have to, like, Google this or go on YouTube or something. But hopefully, in talking about this tonight, you'll be, you'll be kind of just taking it with an open heart and open mind, knowing that, like, this is not magic, this is real life real life stuff we're talking about. And as you leave here today, even if you don't completely agree with what we're talking about, at least, at least gives you food for thought so you can think about it, okay? So Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. I'm not reading the NKJV, so pardon me, but I'm going to read it in, actually, you know what? I'll just do it that way, and then I'll read it in the other version so that you can have both ways. Okay, so once again, Romans chapter 2, verses... 14 and 15. It says, For when Gentiles, that's people that are not Jewish, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, 
who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Wow, that's like a sentence fragment. How in the world can we understand what, was, what that was all about? Well, let's pray and hope it works. Thank you, Lord, for this evening. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you teach us something new. And uh, we pray, Lord, for people here that are questioning, maybe people that have doubts, that it becomes a little bit more clear in their minds tonight. And this is fruitful, not just for our heads, but also for our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So, last year, I believe it was, we had a Q&A. And in that Q&A, people asked me this question that they wanted me to answer. And the question was, what do you think about Harambe? Now, in that question, I could not remember for the life of me what my observations were, but I had something really concrete. And for whatever reason, I was just like, it just, those of you that were there, anybody remember? Like, I just could not remember. I remember. I remember my observations. So I'm about to give it to you tonight. So if you don't know the story, I mean, you should if you live in America in the 21st century. Harambe was a gorilla that was caught in a predicament. In his, I guess, cage or at the Cincinnati Zoo, a child fell into his lair. That sounds like a great word. And this child had no idea, like, you know, that gorillas kill you and are harmful or whatever. And so the gorilla was grabbing this child and, like, dragging it around. You can see the YouTube video. People are screaming and, like, had no idea if this gorilla was going to kill this child, harm this child, had no idea, picks him up, and it's, like, terrifying to watch. And everybody's watching, and then the zookeepers eventually shoot Harambe. And so because of that, everyone was in, in an uproar because Harambe was shot to death simply because there was potential to harm a child, even though it didn't seem like he actually did anything to harm the child. So people start all these different campaigns wearing t-shirts and like believing that Harambe spirit is still with us or some, it's just like weird stuff. He became like a meme, right? Now, no matter what side you're on in this debate, it's easy to see the reason why so many people are upset is because gorillas don't have the moral awareness to discern right from wrong. I think everyone can agree with that. The reason why some people were visibly upset and understandably upset is because we know intuitively that gorillas don't have the ability to tell what is right and what is wrong. Harambe was just being a gorilla. And gorillas sometimes do crazy things and sometimes pick up babies and throw them and drag them and all kinds of things. So Harambe can't be punished and blamed. Now, imagine for a second that we switch out Harambe and in his place, we put a man in his 50s that's dragging a child around and like whipping him around and dragging him in the pool and stuff. At that point, we would hold that man morally responsible, right? We might put him in jail or, I don't know, depending on the level of threat, might shoot him as well. And people would do that and feel justified because the man is in his right mind and he knows what is happening. So, all that to say, my observation is this. In this scenario, it's clear to see that one of the distinctions between humans and animals is moral responsibility and moral consciousness. This is something that's indubitable, means it can't be doubted. Even Charles Darwin, who wasn't a Christian, obviously, started Darwinism, evolutionary theory, even he saw this. He says this in a book he wrote, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. He says, 
Of all the differences between man and the lower anim animals, the moral sense or conscience is by far the most important. So people like, if you ask the question, what's the difference between human beings and animals? Interesting question, right? I asked Sarah Manella that question once, and she said, well, that's easy. Animals don't have fashion sense. <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. And I was expecting like, yeah, it's like, it's so funny because I, I had that question in philosophy class and like, it's so brilliant and so obvious and nobody else saw it. Like my, prof my professor in philosophy class would ask that question and everybody would just be like looking around and like, I don't know, they're trying to like throw something out there. But then just, all I needed was Sarah Manella to be in the class and we could have stumped the professor. <laughs> so the question is, where do we get these moral intuitions? Where do they come from? How is it that all of us intuitively know there are some things that are really good and really wrong? Now, I'm asking that if God doesn't exist in the evolutionary theory, apart from God is true. Because think about it. If animals, the lower animals don't have that moral sense, but humans do, why? Is it because it's an evolutionary adaptation? It's something that we kind of just uh, developed in order for us to flourish and survive. Well, that's what some people believe. That's what Francisco Ayala believes, who's a, a scientist. I believe he's a scientist. He might be a philosopher. Either way. He says that the origin of moral judgments is from our biology. The reason why you have these beliefs about what is good and what is wrong comes from uh, your evolutionary biology. But if that's true, that makes it difficult to make moral judgments from culture to culture because our standard of right or wrong is based on how we feel, which is based on our own survival. That's a loaded sentence. Let me break it down for you. If it's true that apart from God, the reason why you and I know what is right and wrong simply comes from your genetics, and it's like, just like you, you know, um, humans adapted to walk upright instead of like on all fours, and you, evolutionary biology just dictates that suddenly we have this moral intuition, that means that if I grow this sense, right, that means that it's just my sense, but why would I make any judgments on somebody else's sense? Because they just evolved a different way. And maybe a different culture has a whole set of different beliefs that are different than mine, and I can't judge that culture by my own standard. So it seems difficult, especially because we're making these judgments based on how we feel, which is based in how we survive. That's what evolutionary theory says, right? The uh, survival of the fittest, it's the strong that survive. So if your adaptation is such that you have a belief of what is good and what is bad based on how you survive, then that means you should want your culture to survive even at the expense of another culture. So I'll break that down. I know that's a loaded thing, but it's interesting. I'll give you an example. Thomas Nagel, who's a philosopher at NYU, um, he wrote a book called... Um, it's called something. Cosmic something. Something cosmic. I forgot. I'll look it up later and I'll tell you. It is a great book. Darn it. Why can't I remember this book? I quote this book all the time. Anyway, there's a book that he wrote in 2012. I know that much. In the book, he says, if evolutionary theory is true, all of us as human beings shouldn't prefer to know the truth. Now, that's, that's like if you really want to like stretch your brain right now. If what's most important for human beings is survival, sometimes believing a lie is more advantageous than believing the truth. 
Why is it that we want to know the truth about reality, even if it means that we're going to be more depressed? Like, if it's true God doesn't exist, and that we're all going to die in the heat death of the universe one day, then we should prefer to not believe that. And we should prefer to believe a lie. If it's true that someone's saying, hey, I think you're ugly, I think you're weird, or whatever, and that's true, you should, for your own survival, refuse to believe that and prefer to believe something else. But we don't want that. We want the truth. Evolutionary theory might do that for truth, and it might be similar for morality. Okay, so the Bible says a much, much simpler alternative. And it says this. We read it. That God's laws, laws about what is right, are actually written on our hearts. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, in another version, I think it's NLT, says even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. So people, people groups that have never read the Bible before prove that God has written it on our hearts. So he says they demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. So the Bible gives a pretty simple description. God, who is good, has embedded into our consciousness what is right and what is wrong. But it is he that is the source of all that is good. Okay? So if animals don't have this moral sense, we have to ask, well, what is it really for? And this is the question we're going to explore next week. I believe that the Bible shows us that the reason why we know good and evil is so that we can become good and thereby reflect his image. As he is the ultimate good God, right? He's perfect. As we know his laws, we know him, and by knowing him, we become more like him. And we are further from bad things and evil and all that stuff. And that's why I think, if you really think about it, and this is what's going to be so interesting next week. In Genesis, what was the first sin? That they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The very first sin was wanting to know good and evil apart from God. So, can you be good without God? I think if you attempt to know what is right and wrong, apart from God, you'll always be a step behind on doing the good. Okay, we'll explore that next week. Let's keep on going. So, what are we doing tonight? Well, we're going to explore the moral argument, which is a logical series of statements about good and evil that, if it's true, lead to the conclusion that God must exist. So that is what we're about to explore. But before I do that, I have to define some terms. Are you with me so far? Okay. Hope you are. Let's define some terms. I'll try to go slower. We have two terms I want to define for you tonight. Objective and subjective. Objective and subjective. Now, what do I mean by that? Objective just means mind, mind independent. Okay? Mind independent. So objective things would be things that are existing apart from your thinking about it. You ever hear that ancient riddle about, like, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to observe it, does it make a sound? We would say, yeah, it still makes a sound, right? Because it's objective. It's part of reality. So things like gravity, that's an objective truth. You can say, I don't believe in gravity, and you jump off a cliff, and you're going to die. It doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. It, like, exists, right? Homework. Many of you students are like, I don't believe in homework. I'm like, okay, you're going to fail. 
It doesn't matter if you believe. Imagine we approach reality this way. It's like, I don't believe it's true for me. It doesn't matter if you believe that. Like, you will fail all of high school. Now, subjective means mind-dependent, okay? Mind-dependent. So, things like flavors of ice cream are mind-dependent realities. You may want to say that they are objective realities, that mint chocolate chip ice cream is the best ice cream. But it's still a subjective thing. It may be true for you that you feel like this is the best for me, but it's not an objective binding truth for all of humankind, right? Another example is if you've listened to Harry Styles' new album and you're freaking out and you're like, he's the most attractive man in the entire universe, right? Like that may be true for you and we'll pray for you and pray that you never tell your future husband that. But it's subjective, okay? So those two terms, objective and subjective. Now, knowing those two terms, what do we mean by objective and subjective morality? These are very, very important terms, and you're going to hear them all throughout college, okay? You're going to hear them as soon as you leave high school, but you might even hear them in high school. So that's why it's important to write these things down so that you're one step ahead, and when your college professor is just like, all of morality is subjective, you get to be like, oh, hold up. That's not true at all. I learned this in high school at my youth group. Okay, so objective morality. That means that concepts of good and evil really exist regardless of whether people know it or not. So just as the objective reality of gravity is true, right? Gravity exists regardless of whether you believe or not. To say morality is objective means that regardless of whether you believe it or not, some things are really right and really wrong for everybody everywhere. So an objective truth statement when it comes to reality would be like this. The Nazis were evil even if they exterminated all the people on, on the earth and controlled the world. And said like, well, I'm going to eliminate every person that disagrees with me. It's still wrong. doesn't matter what you believe about it. There are some things that we can point at and say, that's wrong for everybody everywhere. I don't care what you believe. Now, subjective morality means that goodness and evil are just labels of opinion that don't actually require people to be bound by it. So an example of this would be saying like, you know, we like to believe that the Nazis were evil and that they were wrong, but you know, if the Nazis didn't believe that murdering millions of Jews was wrong, then it's just their matter of opinion. They just felt like they were doing what was right. So it's kind of like taking the force of, the words like evil and wrong and robbing them of all their meaning to make it sound like, you know, the Holocaust was terrible, but that meal was terrible. That cook is terrible, right? It just robs it of all its meaning because there's no objective reality to it. It's just your opinion. So, that being the case, what are relativ relativistic morals? This is a form of subjective, and you might hear this a lot. In college, you might study that what's right and wrong depends on the respective culture. So what people say to you is, you know, people believe that uh, one man and one woman should be married in America. They believe that's what marriage is. But there are some cultures that believe that one man can marry many women and one woman can marry many men, and that's not weird for their culture. And that's what proves that morality is different for everybody. Now, a lot of people hear that statement and like, oh, yeah, I've never seen it that way. But that makes moral comparisons impossible. Impossible. Because if we say 
that that culture is just doing what they believe, how in the world do you judge any culture on what they believe? How can we look at North Korea and what they're doing, which is wrong, which is they are imprisoning so many millions of people inside of their country and impressing them, forcing them to worship their dictator, all kinds of crazy stuff, brainwashing them. And we can look at that and, and not say that's wrong and say, like, well, you know, that culture is just different. And they just, whatever makes them happy. And some people are so brainwashed to believe, like, this is the best life that, that is possible for them because they completely filter out all the things on TV, all the things on the Internet, so that they believe that they are living. I actually read in a, a memoir that what they do is, on the TV, the only thing they show of America is, like, whenever there's a terrorist plot or wherever there's, like, uh, violence or something, they put that on the news to say, to, to be like, see how dangerous it is out there and you're safe in here. So it's complete propaganda. It's crazy, right? Now we can look at that and say it's wrong and not just because we're Americans, but because there are really some things that are wrong and really some things that are good. But to say that all things are equal and it all depends on your opinion actually says that when we punish terrorists, we actually are just as right as a people that are terrorists, which is very confusing. So deep down inside, we know that there are things that are really right and really wrong. But then the question is, what makes it so? What makes something really right and really wrong? Now, at this part of the conversation so far, I have not told you um, the alternatives, right? So a person might look at everything we've said so far and be like, okay, but that doesn't mean like there are there isn't an, an option for objective morality outside of God. But I'll, I'll get to that in a second, okay? Now, Dr. Norman Geisler, who's a theologian, says this. We don't invent the moral law any more than we invent mathematical or physical laws. No one invented the laws of math, and Newton did not invent gravity. Like moral laws, they were discovered. And that's what I'm saying tonight, is that intuitively we know deep down inside there are some things that are really right and really wrong, to, no matter what you believe about it. So then where do these things come from, and how do we know where they come from? So here's the argument. The argument, moral argument for the existence of God is, number one, every law has a law giver. Number two, there is an objective moral law. And number three, therefore, there is a moral law giver. So number one, Every law has a lawgiver. Number two, there is an objective moral law. And number three, therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. So number one, every law has a lawgiver. This is pretty obvious, right? So every time you have an, a prescription, somebody had to prescribe it, right? Otherwise, it's not a prescription. If you go up to the pharmacist and the person says, okay, where's, where's your prescription for whatever drugs, drugs that you need? And you're like, well, I prescribed it. Like that... It doesn't work here. You need, like, you need authority. You need somebody who's an expert to prescribe you something. You can't just make it up and just, like, assume. And, and the reason why is because many people abuse those prescriptions. Just like every law is given by a lawgiver. Like, if there are laws that we have to obey, that's because there's an authoritative government or body of people that are telling us what to do. That doesn't mean that they're always right. But there are people that prescribe those laws. So that's pretty intuitive. Number two, there is an objective moral law. So there are objective morals. And if somebody tells you, well, no, they don't really exist. They're all subjective. They're all relative. 
then what do people do when you treat them unfairly? So if you have a professor that's like, well, you know, morality is all subjective. It all depends what you believe. Kick them and see what happens. Ow, stop that. Why should I stop that? You said, like, whatever you feel like doing, and I feel like kicking you. Who are you to tell me to stop, right? Don't actually kick them and then blame me. That's wrong. Blame Joe Fisher because he's not here. So anytime that you, I mean, this is what kids do, right? Anytime someone says, stop that, you say, well, who says? Who are you going to tell about it, right? You're looking for that authority figure. So there's objective morality. We, we all have that intuitively. Number three, therefore, there is a moral law giver. Now, if someone wants to say, everyone has an obligation to do what's best for mankind and to love one another. It's like, that sounds great, but why? Why is it that you feel that way? Once again, if you have kids fighting and you're breaking them up and telling them you should be friends with one another, somebody's hurt, right? And sometimes somebody really is in the wrong and someone was in the right. But to tell them like, hey, guys, like you have to share, you have to make up. Like there's a reason why you're telling them that, right? It's for their own good. But what if they don't want what's good for the other person? What if they want to do what's best for number one? So the difficulty with understanding this argument is that it's so common sense that to understand what it would be like to live in a world without this is we would have to actually strip away our common sense. So all of this seems so obvious to us. Like, obviously, yeah, there's objective reality, uh, morality. We all believe that. But to really understand a world without God, without objective morals, really means that every moral judgment we make is just a matter of opinion. And it removes all authority and all weight from any moral judgment you make. So every time you turn on the news and you watch a terrorist do something stupid, you look at that and you reasonably look at that and say, there's something really wrong with that. And not just my biology dictates that, you know, this is not advantageous for the flourishing of all humans. Nobody thinks that. That sounds stupid. You say there is something really wrong about that. There is something evil. And if you've never actually been in the presence of evil, maybe you don't know that. But you can actually, like, when you're playing around with stupid stuff, Ouija boards, or you're with people that might be demonically oppressed or whatever, like, you sense, like, there's something wrong here. So, how do you explain those things without God? Well, now at this point of the conversation, you might be asking, well, why is God the source of what is good? You're just making this huge assumption, right? So there is objective morality. We all know that. But why is that source God? Well, I would say this. If a perfect, all-loving, good God exists, then it makes perfect sense that we would, make, we would get the concept of good from him because he himself is the ultimate source of all that is good. Okay, so if we believe what the Bible says, that God is love, right? To say, why is God the source of all that is good is kind of like asking, why is a square uh, why does the square have four sides? It's just the way it is, right? So if God in his nature describes a little bit of who he is through his laws, that makes sense, apart from these things just being arbitrary. So in order to know what is good, William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher, has this illustration. He says, what makes something a high-fidelity recording, like a good quality recording, like an MP3 or even a CD or whatever, 
What makes it a really good recording is how close it sounds to the original. How, how close it, it sounds to the original performance. And so for us, to do good things means that we are conforming to the nature of God. I'm not just making this up. This is the traditional concept of what it means to be good and, and what, God, what it means to be God. Okay? The fact that God is good is a traditional concept that we've had for ages. But then you're asking, wait a minute, what if God was an evil God? Well, then we would still have this concept called good, right? And this is actually what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis came to the point where he said, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So now, if you think about it, think of the map of New Jersey, okay? Think about what New Jersey looks like. Now, if somebody doodled New Jersey, we would know whether or not it's a good rendition of what New Jersey looks like based on the original. Now, if there is no original, then there's nothing to compare. All of our moral judgments are subjective. But if God exists and he is good, then even these concepts that we get of justice, kindness, morality, all these things, actually come from him and flow from him. So we'll get to that in a second. So, he doesn't merely or arbitrarily choose what is right or wrong, but goodness is a trait that flows from his nature. And if we don't have a being like this that is maximally good, then we have no ultimate lawgiver, no prescriber, and no authority that we can point to in, in order to show that some things are really good or evil. If there is no standard, we have nothing to point to to say some things are really right and really wrong. You have no way to measure it. Um, there's a movie that came out a number of years ago. Anybody see this movie called Chronicle? Anybody? Okay. Wow. Okay, so in this movie, it's crazy. There's a bunch of, I guess, teenagers who stumble upon this pit, and they, I'm just spo going to spoil the whole plot for you. Sorry. Spoilers. You're never going to watch it anyway. You don't have time. Um, so they stumble upon this pit, and in it, there's like some ancient weird stuff, and they all develop these superpowers. So they can fly, they can control things, they can move things. It's crazy. And as they do it, as they do it, it's really, really interesting because all these friends, one of them is always picked on, always bullied, and they start experimenting with their superpowers, and they know it's like they can use this power for a lot of evil. They actually accidentally move a car and it like falls into a ditch and they like freak out because they, they might have killed somebody. And so they all tell each other like, all right, so we can't just use this power for evil. We can't use this power to harm people. So they all make this morally binding contract with one another. Let's promise not to hurt anybody. But then for the kid who's bullied, he's constantly confused because as people are pushing him around, he's like, I can kill these guys. I could beat them up. What would prevent me from beating them up? And then there's actually this like, this climactic scene in the middle of the movie where a spider is kind of crawling by and he just takes his power and just rips the spider to shreds. And he thinks about it like if everybody, everyone like a human being is like an ant to me or like a spider to me, why wouldn't I just squash them if they're treating, mistreating me? And so like the movie ends tragically and like he goes crazy and starts killing people and stuff. So it's interesting because looking at that, that is what evolutionary biology tells you is that if you have power, the, the strong survive and the weak die. So what is wrong about that guy defending himself and punishing those people that hurt him? And in fact, isn't that exactly how all wars start? Isn't it true 
that countries go to war against other countries because although we want to stand back and say we should do what benefits all of society, that sounds nice, but what if, as Ravi Zacharias says, I do better when you're not around? That's what countries say. They say, I flourish better when you're not in my life. So the code of the world is to get rid of your enemies, not to love your enemies. To love actually means to allow yourself to be vulnerable, to do what Jesus did, to die because he loved. But evolutionary biology doesn't teach that, right? So that being said, what are some objections to everything I've just said? I'll go over a couple, and then we'll be done, and we'll talk about it. Someone might say, well, you don't need God to be a good person. You can be a great person without God. Atheist Sam Harris believes this, that goodness is the best possible world for everyone, and evil is the worst misery for everyone, so goodness is the flourishing and happiness of all people. So that's how he defines goodness. Like, you don't need God to define what is good. I just told you what it is. Goodness is the flourishing and happiness of all people. Well, once again, what if... I flourish if you're not around. In fact, isn't this exactly what happened in Nazi Germany when they said if we could just get rid of the Jews, and I'm half Jewish, then we'll flourish better as a society. It's dangerous and it's demonic to believe that. And beyond that, according to some statistics, there's about 3 million people in the world that are psychotic and enjoy inflicting pain on people. You can envision a world where the majority of people are psychopaths and they enjoy hurting people, and we would still say that the majority of them saying, my flourishing is like hurting all these, the minority of people, and I'm going to be doing fine and whatever. Like, we would still say that's a terrible world. It doesn't matter what the majority believes, right? It doesn't matter how many people are saying that this is the way that we want to do it. If you're oppressing even the minority of people, that would be wrong. So it can't be the flourishing of the most amount of people. There has to be something beyond that. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. Let's say that there's going to be um, a terrorist who's plotting to kill thousands and thousands of people in New York City because he planted a bomb somewhere in Times Square. And knowing this, we capture the terrorist, and he's not talking about how to dismantle the bomb. And you are in the situation where you're like, well, if we don't dismantle this bomb, thousands and thousands of people are going to die. You have the terrorist in your, in your custody, and you know he has one weakness. If you torture the terrorist's only son, who's innocent, then he'll talk. Because he can't bear to see the only son that he loves tortured. So in that case, do you think it's worth actually torturing this innocent boy for the sake of saving thousands of lives? What would you do? Would you torture and this is what people do, like philosophically, without even using the innocent child, right? Now, no matter what you believe about that, no matter where you stand on that, this is what Jesus did for us. That he wasn't forced to, but he willingly laid down his life for all of us. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. And I have the power to, to not only put it down, but take it up again. You see, Jesus was the one who sacrificed himself for the many. He demonstrated what true goodness is like. And that love demonstra demonstrated for us is that while we're evil people, he still died for all of us. Now, if atheism is true, 
why would anybody do that? Why would anyone sacrifice themselves for others? And I think if you look at it, what atheist Sam Harris is saying when he says that you can be good without God, okay, I'm not saying that you can't know what is good, and we'll get to that in a second, but what makes something right or wrong? If you have a police officer who pulls you over and says, hey, you got a speeding ticket, whatever, you'd have to listen to him because he's a police officer. But if an old man honks his car at you, say, pull over, you're speeding, you're like, you're an old man, and you just keep on driving, right? And so it would seem to me that in order for something to really be good and really be evil, you would need some kind of authority over that. So the second objection is similar, and that's this. I only have three objections, so don't worry. Popular response is, if God is the ultimate lawgiver and source of morality, why is it that we don't all agree on what is good and evil? So this is where that person's like, well, then what about that culture over in, in some other country that believes that you can be married to like five or ten other people and that's fine? Like, why don't we agree? If God is the one who gives us what is right and wrong, how come we don't agree? Well, I would say this. This is confusing two different questions. I'll use two big words, and I'll never use them ever again in this message. It's confusing ontology with epistemology. The first word, because I just said I wouldn't use it twice. The first word is describing the study of being, so that which is reality. And the second word is about how we come to know things. So when a person says, how come we don't agree on everything, that doesn't mean that those things don't really exist, okay? So in a similar illustration, a child can know the meaning of the word light and darkness without knowing everything that there is to know about the light spectrum. We can know similar concepts, and it's possible that people can numb their conscience or suppress the truth of God's laws, but that doesn't mean that those concepts don't really exist somewhere in some universe, right? So just because you may not know everything of what God has commanded doesn't mean that they don't really exist. Third objection, and this one might be the most powerful one, and that is if God is really a good God, then how come there is evil in the world? Well, this is the response I would give. Once again, the C.S. Lewis quote, right? You don't know what a crooked line looks like unless you put it against a straight line. And you need some kind of standard. And so knowing that there's evil in the world, evil is a lack of a thing. It's not really a thing. Just like darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of good. So to say, why is there evil in the world? You have to ask yourself, is there such thing as good? Now, if God created us, he really exists and really created us with an idea of justice, then every time that we feel like God is unjust, remember he's the one who gave you that idea. So it's more probable that we are just confused about what is right and what is wrong than God actually be unjust. Because if God is the ultimate source of good, why would he not be good and give us a better concept of goodness than he has himself? I know that's really confusing. I'm sorry. Okay, so Alvin Plantinga is another philosopher who says... Now, let's say that God had sufficient reasons for knowing why he's allowing evil in the world. Let, let's say that God, for whatever reason, says, I'm going to allow evil for a short period of time, but there's a reason behind it. Why would the Christian be the first person to know? Maybe there's, there's such crazy reasons behind why God allows evil that we'll never be able to understand in this life. That's possible, right? So once again, it's that, that question of like reality and knowing 
Just because we may not know the answer doesn't mean that there's not a good answer. On top of that, some pain has good purposes. There would be no such thing as a hero without a villain. There'd be no such thing as courage without fear. And when you have pain in your tooth, right? Like that's a good thing to show you there's something really wrong with that. You need to go to the dentist. It could be possible that God allows pain and suffering and evil in our lives for a season as testing for his people so that we can be refined and then we inherit eternity. That's the story is that this is just a blip on the radar of eternity. This life that we're living now. And though it may be serious, some of the pain that you experience in your life, it can be very serious. But understand that there will be nothing in eternity that will not be able to overcompensate for what we've experienced as loss in this life. We're going to be so overwhelmed with joy and, and reward. And if we persevere and we accept the Lord and we, we um, follow after him, will there be so much reward in the next life that all of this life here will just seem like a blip on the radar. Now, that may not make it feel better in the moment, but also realize that Jesus doesn't just stand idly by as humanity suffered, although he could have. It's like, man, you guys mess all of this up yourself, right? We're, we have to recognize we perpetrate evil. So it's kind of a contradiction when the person says, man, I don't want God to, like, meddle with my life and tell me what to do. And then, like, when evil happens, you're like, man, why doesn't God do something? Like, you... You, at first, you don't want God to meddle with your life when you do bad things and you want to do your own thing. And then when there's bad stuff happening, you're wondering why that happens. Because ultimately, when we see evil in the world, it's, the fact of the matter is we all perpetrate evil a little bit ourselves. We contribute to the problem. When you lie, when you gossip, even if it's a small thing, it could, and you've seen this happen before, right? It can cause a lot of damage. And so what God wants to do through his son, Jesus Christ, is enter, he has 2,000 years ago, entered this world and took all of your sin, all of your punishment, all of your pain upon himself so that one day that every tear that you cry could be wiped away. And in the meantime, he stores it in a bottle. He knows every tear that you've cried. He knows the times that you've been struggling with God, the times that you've had doubts. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for you so that you would have a way to heaven, though you never had to. That we don't deserve it. Because once again, we're bad people. We all do bad things. And sometimes we're, we feel justified in doing bad things because we've been hurt first. But what God is saying is, listen, all of us are causing that pain. And that's why he himself decided to settle it by being the sacrifice. So now, on atheism, what do you do with all this? What is the solution to evil? If you ask yourself, like, how could a good God allow evil in this world? What do you do if you don't believe in God? There is no solution to evil. On top of that, evil really isn't bad. It's just somebody's opinion of what's good and what's wrong. And it could be different for somebody else. And what do you do about that? Because science can't tell you what you ought to do. It can only tell you what is. It can only tell you what is the case. It might tell us what we are, but not what is wrong with what we are. It can't tell you, like, there will be never a scientific experiment that the, the, the conclusion is, and we should be moral people. Like, that is a philosophical interpretation of data. So looking purely at the facts, we have to ask ourselves, where do the facts lead, lead us? And listen, listen to what a serial murderer, Jeffrey Dahmer, said. He said this. If it all happens naturalistically, what is the need for a God? 
Can't I set my own rules? Who owns me? I own myself. He wondered, if there's no God and we all just came from the slime, then what's, point, what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's what the murderer said. And I think, like, if you're an atheist, that doesn't mean that you believe this. But this is the logical outworking of a life without God. Is that everybody just believes what they want to believe? The strong survive? And I think, deep down inside, we know that's, that's not true. I was going to say, we know that's poppycock. But that's like, since when do I use that word? I've been studying too much. I'm sorry. I'm going to read you a quote, and we'll close with this, okay? There's a quote by a Yale professor named Arthur Allen Leff. And he is looking at all of reality and has the conclusion, I think, I think morality is subjective. I think that all of this is left to our opinion. But there's something wrong about that, right? Because just like the playground bully, every time you get pushed around, you're like, says who? Stop that, says who? Right? He feels like that. You can say that to everything, right? So he says this. All I can say is this. It looks as if we are all we have. Given what we know about ourselves and each other, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason nor love nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us could law be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. So he's saying, like, only if there was something above humanity that held us to a standard could it be unchallengeable and not just be something from our biology. So he says, as things stand now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Those who stood up and died re resisting Hitler and Stalin too have earned salvation. And there is in the world such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? That's his conclusion. You have these contradictions of these moral convictions. of Like, I want to say this is wrong, but I have no power to say it's wrong. Because each and every one of us know there's only one authority of power, and that's God. Let's pray.